that everyone looked at and thought he's going to be the he's going to be the leader. But oftentimes, the people that God uses in Scripture to save His people are the small people, um, the unlikely places. David himself being the prime example, the youngest of seven brothers in the town of Bethlehem, a tiny little town on the edge of Judah, and. No one thought that anything good would come from there. And yet, here is David who came from Bethlehem. And then, thousands of years later, um, Jesus comes from this little bitty town in the middle of nowhere in Judah. And when it says that he's too, you, O Bethlehem, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah... Probably what he's referring to is the fact that when they entered into the promised land, when Joshua finally conquered the Canaanites and they were dividing up the land, he says, you know, to Ephraim, here are your cities, and to, um, uh, to Simeon, here are your cities, and to Benjamin, here are your cities, and to Judah, here are your cities. And if you read the list, there is no Bethlehem listed in the cities. Because it was so small, there was no point in mentioning it. It was a tiny little town, even at the time of Joshua, that it was barely worth mentioning. In fact, really before then, the only times it's mentioned in Scripture are in passing. Uh, That Abraham was on his way to Bethlehem and buried his wife, Rachel, on the way in Shechem. Or things like that. It's just a passing, fleeting mention of this tiny speck of a town in the middle of the Judean countryside. And there is this theme that God builds over and over, over and over in Scripture, and is that He uses the weak to shame the wise. It is the epitome of what God does. In fact, that is the language that Paul uses to talk about the gospel, that it's the weak that shame the wise. It is the unwise of the world. The unloving, the unsmart, the uneducated of the world who shame the wise. Because we believe that God has done these things. And here you have Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And I think of my own life in this. So my dad is a first generation Christian. Um, His parents were not believers and he was not raised in the church and my dad and I were talking about this just a few weeks ago over Thanksgiving and just the difficulties of that and and then he you know became a Christian married my mom started having children um, and he basically thought you know every I'm going to try to try to do everything completely opposite of what my dad did and then I'll probably end up being an okay dad and the fruit of my dad's faith to do that is that now he has four believing children with four believing spouses who are attempting to raise all of our children to fear and love the Lord. And there are 13 grandkids. And now in two generations, my dad, who was the first, has given birth to almost two dozen faithfuls. And the hope is that it will continue on. And that was a small thing, right? An unlikely thing. There was no real difference between my dad and his brothers and the way they were raised and the the way they walked through their 20s. And then God just pulled him out and made him a different man. And here, 
Over and over in Scripture, the same sort of thing happens. You have Gideon, this man who, when God comes to him, he says, Please, Lord, I'm of the tiny tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was a half-tribe of Israel because Manasseh and Ephraim were Joseph's sons. So he's a half-tribe, and he says, I'm, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, so I'm a half-tribe. I'm of a, a little bitty clan in the half-tribe of Manasseh. I've got nothing. And I, not only that, I'm the least in my father's house, which probably means he's the youngest boy, again, in the father's house. And then God says, you're the one, Gideon. You're going to make, you're going to be the leader. He gathers this huge army and then winnows it down to 300 men to, again, just prove spectacularly that he is the God who is not dependent on outward appearances at all, ever. And then perhaps one of the most glaring examples of the flip-flop of this is Saul and David. Saul was a head taller than everyone else in Israel. He looked like a king. He was tall. He was broad-shouldered. He was a soldier's soldier. He was a man's man. He was eloquent. You know, he prophesied with the prophets. He was a leader. He just took the, took the city by storm And God said, I I don't look at outward appearances. I look at the heart. And Saul, I have rejected. And David will be king. And David, again, from this little bitty town of Bethlehem, least in his father's house, a shepherd. We talked a little bit this morning in Sunday school that we have a very positive view in our minds as Christians of shepherds because God is called our shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. But the reality is, shepherds, through pretty much all of history, have been some of the most despised people, including in Israel, because they were with the stinky animals, and they smelled bad, and their animals got in the way, and they were out in the fields, and they were sunburnt and strange, and they weren't around people a lot, so they weren't like the greatest, you know, fun to be around people. You all know people like this, right? That you just kind of go, they're... A strange breed, farmers, you know. They're just a strange... There's just nothing personal, Greg. The, uh, a strange breed. Um, and here God raises up not just a king from David, the shepherd boy, the least in his father's household of this tiny little town, but the great king of Israel who wrote a good chunk of the Psalms who is, in fact, called the man after God's own heart, the man that we see throughout the Bible being championed as God's chosen king. From Bethlehem, tiny little house in Bethlehem. And we have talked about how God sustained the promises to his people and raised up from the house of Judah rulers. And then we, we think of just natural history, right? Things that aren't contained in Scripture. This was uh, Joseph Spurgeon, one of the pastors in our presbytery, posted this, I don't know, a week or so ago, and it just struck me. Um, so the, uh, the pilgrims who came over in 1620, I, I forget how many people were on the ship, but about 100 of them survived the voyage and were planted in, uh, at Plymouth. Okay, 100 people. Of those, about 40 to 45 survived the first year. So you have 40, 45 people. Within 30 years, those 
40, 45 people were 160 people. Now, how did they get to be 160 people? Was it emigration? Did people move in to Plymouth? No, they had children. In the devastating, awful, death-filled time, they just had faith to have children. And more children. And more children. And more children to the point where there were 160 where there had only been 40 in 30 years. And God's kindness to them to do an unlikely thing with an unlikely group in this tiny little town in a new world. All sorts of things stacked against them and they had the faith to continue to be fruitful and ask God to make them fruitful. And then underneath Joseph Spurgeon's post was one of the elders at his church, Aaron Sabe, who posted this part of a commentary on the book of Numbers. And uh, Matthew Henry talks about this Exodus time when there were 22,000 newborn males during the 40 years in the desert. Newborn, I'm sorry, 22,000 firstborn males in the desert, which likely means there were probably about 22,000 firstborn females in the desert. So 44,000 firstborns in the desert, let alone all the non-firstborns that were born in those 40 years. The people of Israel trusted God to make them fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in a time that we would just go, don't have any kids. Don't have any kids. It's awful. We're in the desert, you know. Most of us aren't even going to enter the promised land because we've been cursed by God. We have been to the edge of the promised land and it's full of giants. We have no inheritance. We can't go back to Egypt. We're stuck here in the desert. Don't have any kids. And if you think that that's not still a thing, I assure you, look at the birth rates over the last year across the entire world. This is something that I was unaware of until about a year ago. But one of the ways that historians judge the economic times of the entirety of history is the birth rate. Because when the birth rate drops, it's because economic times are hard and people stop having children. They don't have the faith to have children in hard times. They stop. And this happens all the time. This is happening right now. The birth rate in America is at the lowest point it's ever been. It's already super and extremely low. It's around 1.6 children per family, which is not enough to replace the, the adults who had them. So the birth rate is already below replacement rate in America. And in South Korea, which has the lowest birth rate, um, which was 0.8-something a couple of years ago, this past year was 0.6. That when the, the crush of COVID happened, everyone just went, not having children. Who wants to raise them? Who can afford it? How can we do this? And the faith just withers away, but not in the household of faith, not in Israel, not in Plymouth, and not in God's church today. We have to encourage one another. I know we don't have a lot of young families, (laughs) excuse me, like basically us at this point, and if you include the Lukies, maybe you guys will have another one, maybe. Huh? <laughs> Brian's like, uh. <laughs> the, the reality is, when young families do come in, 
To encourage them. Not say, you must have children, but to go, God will provide. God has always provided. You have your fears that God won't provide, that, that the times will get tough, that they'll have, a, you know, they'll have this, that, or the other against them. God will be with them. God will be with them. God will be with my children. God will be with all of our children. Another way that we don't believe this sort of thing is that we have in our heads, in many areas, the same exact problem the Israelites had when they chose Saul as their king. That we look at the outward appearance all the time. All the time. In every kind of situation you could possibly imagine. Who do we choose to be our leaders? The good looking. The slick hair. The polished look. We don't choose ugly politicians. And you're going to say, oh, but what about this person? Listen, I don't care who you pick. They're better looking than half of America. That's true. And you can go, no, they're not, Joe. And I'll pull up pictures of half of America. And you'll go, oh, yeah, I guess guess you're right. Most of America is, half of America is not good looking. The other half is. And we always choose the better half. We always do. And yeah, some of them are old and not so good looking now, but when they were first elected, you better believe that they were hot to trot. Because we do not like ugly people leading us. We also don't like to pick anyone who we think might fail. We don't like to pick the person who's quiet. We like to pick the person who's exuberant. We don't like to pick the person who's short. We like to pick the person who's tall. You don't have to go very far in history to see that you don't have very many presidents who are as short as I am. In fact, I'm not sure you have any that are as short as I am. Why is that? Nobody that's five foot seven ever had an ambition to be president of the United States? No. It's because when you put them on stage next to a six foot two man, you kind of lose a little bit of faith in the guy who's five foot seven. And you think, no, I don't. Yes, you do. This is why, you know, if they talk about this, the, the first televised election series was JFK and, huh? Nixon. And why do they think JFK did so well? Because he could present on TV. He looked nice. And Nixon's over there all slumped over, grayed out, yellow looking sallow, you know. He didn't get elected. Yeah, exactly. This is, we look all the time at this. And then, we don't just do it in that sort of arena. We do it in other arenas. We press things like college education to the point and exclusion of all other things on our children. That if they are not college educated, they will never be successful because you need a college education these days. And so we say to the girl who's 21... Don't get married to that guy until you're done with college and don't you dare have a child. You better finish your degree. Now, if you don't think we're looking on the outward appearances when we say those things, then you need to look a little harder. Because what is that other than not having faith that God will provide for a family who doesn't have an education on both sides? We think, we always have to prepare for the worst. What if they get a divorce? What if he dies? How will God, God has always provided for his people. Always. Always. And so we look at what God has done with these small things. 
And throughout history, it's not just the small things that God has done. It's the faithful that he has used. It's not just the small, but it's the small faith that he has used. And throughout history, there have been women who have been barren and unable to conceive. This is all through history, and it's recorded in Scripture for us many times. Sarai, Abram's wife, barren, until she was 90 years old. Elizabeth and Zechariah at the time of Jesus. I forget their ages, but she's not a young woman. This is the common thread of Scripture. And when those women choose to believe God for an impossible seed, he blesses them and gives them things like the kingdom of Israel, from her. Isaac, and then comes Jacob, who are the 12 tribes of Israel, from the faith of Sarah, who scripture says was as good as dead. She was 90. There was no point in even thinking or hoping that the promise of God would come true for her. And she herself has trouble, right? She laughs when the Lord finally comes at 90 years old and says, This time next year you will have a son. And she goes, <laughs> and then he goes, why did you laugh? She goes, I didn't, I didn't laugh. And then she names her son Isaac, which means laughter. Like, this is God's way of dealing with our lack of faith, is he does things that are impossible all the time. Impossible victories, impossible fruitfulness, impossible bread. And he does it through Tiny little things, and we despise tiny little things. We despise them. We don't like slow growth. And yet God has given us many examples of this is the way that the world has been made. Right? Every single year, farmers take these tiny little things from different plants called seeds. They're this big or smaller. Right? You've got a corn kernel that's big. You've got a wheat seed that's like this big. You've got just these tiny little specks of carrots that you can barely even tell should grow into anything. And then we put them in the ground. And then we plow and we harvest and we cultivate and we fertilize and we water and we all these things. All these things. And who gives the growth every year? God. No amount of the perfect chemical balance of soil will cause a seed to germinate if God says it will not. And we have faith for these little seeds all the time. All the time. Every year. We plant millions and millions of them with complete, utter, total faith that God will give a harvest. Every year. Most of us, a thoughtless faith that gives no thought to God. We just, this is what you do to get food. You plant, you water, you fertilize, it comes up, then we harvest, then we eat. That is a, that is a, a, a little picture of what God does all the time with tiny little things that grow into monumental, life-changing food. What is the great triumph of Bethlehem? 
other than the bread of life that was coming. This is all the stories of God. Little seed, a little faith, in a little place, in a little person. And God blossoms out of it. This unbelievable fruit. This unbelievable thing. You look at the birth of Christ. This little town of Nazareth. This man, this woman. They've got to go now down to Bethlehem. They're barely able to make it. Nobody will take them in. It's not said in Scripture why they can't find anybody to take them in, but you've got to think they had relatives since they're from the town of Beth. It wasn't like everyone went, yeah, I've never heard of this Joseph guy. Who is he? Everyone was like, oh, yeah, Cousin Joe. Yeah, he's from, he lives in Nazareth. He's down. Why do you think they couldn't find any room? Do you think perhaps it might be because they thought Mary had been unfaithful? Probably. Probably a big portion of what happened in Bethlehem was they went knocking and everybody said, sorry, filled up, no room here. We don't want that kind of trouble in our house. We despise that in our own church. Um, And I don't mean particularly like I've seen it. I just know churches full of people who despise these things and the reason things like James have to be written. Don't treat... The poor man, different than you treat the rich man. Who do we want to stick around in a church? Well, are they going to be a good giver? What's that a question but of wealth? Are they going to give of themselves? Are they going to to work hard? Or are they going to kind of suck off all the things that we have to give? And those sorts of questions are the questions we ask of whether or not we care if that person comes back the next week. Because if they don't have those things, it's why all the time God uses the exact opposite to just completely and utterly shame us. All the time he does this, and it's for our good. Because we need to have the faith that Micah called the people of Israel to. We need to have the kind of faith that when we get rebuked, we don't get angry and we don't grumble. But instead we say, There's coming. there was one who came. There's one who came. And he will shepherd the flock. I'm going to talk just a little bit about this word shepherd because it's, it's, all over the Old Testament, but it's in a couple different forms. Um, the word shepherd, about 95% of the time, could also be translated feed. It's the same word. Okay, So when you see the word shepherd, most of the time it's just the word feed. So you could read uh, Micah, He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Or then later... Um, they shall, sh- they shall feed the land of Assyria with the sword. The, the most important task of a shepherd is not protection from wolves, is not gathering the lost, it's not even the shearing, which is the result of his good work. 
It's feeding them. He could keep all the wolves away. He could keep them from the cliffs. He could have all the tools to shear them. But if they die in the wilderness because he starved them, he's a bad shepherd. And so the mark of a good shepherd is that he feeds his people. And Jesus is the good shepherd. He feeds us real food, important food. Godliness and grace is found in him. And we eat it and we consume it and it feeds our souls. And this was the hope of the faithful of Israel who heard the rebuke of Micah and believed that a shepherd would come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And more than that, believed that he would come at the proper time. It's unfortunate that uh, the ESV translates this, um, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Um, I, I'm not sure why they chose to translate it that way. Um, the, word base, the words there are basically just, and he comes from everlasting days. And it's the same word that's used, our God is from everlasting to everlasting. It's, it's a reference to the fact that his coming is not a response. But it was planned before the days began, from everlasting, back in the eternity of God. That there was going to come one to feed his people, to shepherd his people. And he would come at the proper time, right? His coming forth is from of old. That the proper time, God would come and he would feed his people with the right man. And Christ was that man. And we can have absolute confidence that God has never, ever wavered in his plan. And there is not a single event in the whole history of the world including the events from two days ago in Kentucky and Arkansas that were not ordained and planned so that men might feed from his good shepherd. That's the whole point, is that we would go to the man from Bethlehem and eat. That's the whole deal. And he did it at the perfect time. And he does all of the things to drive us in to feed at the feet of the Savior. That is the whole of history. And he does it through unlikely people in unlikely places all the time. Amen? We're going to be taking communion this morning. And it's fitting that we should take it. Where's my... There we go. The... uh,